Welcome back, everyone. Do my welcome back sign. <laughs> welcome back. So I want to continue today with a theme that we explored uh, last week. And last week, we started to explore the theme of deepening daily life practice, of making our sense of cultivating love and compassion and wisdom and responsive action. How do we cultivate that more and more in more and more parts of our lives? Last week, I suggested that we could see this as really the most important aspect of our practice. How do we make it real in our daily lives, in all the different um, parts of our lives, you know, in our work, in our family life, in our relationships, in our role in the society and so forth? How do we, how do, we do that? And you know, I think of a, a beautiful line from the, I think it was from around the, right around the beginning of the 19th century, end of the 18th century, from the great uh, Tibetan teacher Shabkar. And he said, let your life and your practice be one. And so I want to continue with that, do some review of what we covered last time, but then uh, take us further and point to, point to uh, a core practice. Uh, last time, I gave a kind of overview of the theme and focused particularly in the last part on the theme of mindfulness of the body as really a very key practice. We could say a foundational practice for daily life. And I'll, I'll review that, and then I'll take us further in um, exploring a second large theme that can be really fundamental for daily life practice, which is working, we might say, practicing with reactivity when it comes up in our lives, when we get irritable, judgmental, when we grasp onto things, when we push them away. So that's that's what I'll cover today. I'll point to a number of practices that we can do as well. So first, just to recognize, as we did last time, that bringing our practices of mindfulness, cultivating wisdom, cultivating the kind heart, bringing that into daily life is challenging, can be quite difficult for all sorts of reasons right, that uh, I mentioned last time how actually the emphasis in what we can call insight meditation, as it's uh, developed in many centers like Spirit Rock, the emphasis has been more on retreats than on really making daily life practice the center. And, you know, we're, we do these, and, I, and what I'm saying is partly a critique of myself, you know, as someone who teaches retreats, that uh, I would say that we haven't given the same level of thoroughness and depth to um, 
daily life practice that we have to retreats. You know, and there, there are multiple reasons for that. But I think that's really uh, very much called for. So we've, we've often uh, really focused on having deep retreat experiences and not given a huge amount of guidance for how to make it real in all the parts of our lives, even though, uh, you know, there's some, there's some interest there. But it's, it's, I would say it's still being developed. And it's, it's, been, a, it's been a strong interest of mine probably from the beginning, but especially uh, maybe the last uh, eight or nine years where it's really been very clear that my personal edge of learning was way more in daily life practice than it was in retreats, which is interesting, interesting place to be, right? So, so it's difficult because we don't have necessarily so much support or guidance. It's also difficult because the larger culture uh, shall we say, doesn't always have wisdom and compassion at its center. Is that an understatement? <laughs> I think so. Is that true of the multiple countries where other people are? You know, I know as, uh, you know, we have people uh, from, I remember Canada, Germany, France, and so forth. Uh, and so, uh, those values are not necessarily central. And also we have in many cultures, many societies, it's almost like a culture of distraction. What can you really be uh, distracted by? Here are 10 new ways to be, interesting ways to be distracted, not to be really, really present. You know, and it's also, you know, we're also uh, in many ways in a, in a very mental culture. It doesn't affect everyone the same way, but that's, that's strong. And that, makes, that can make daily life practice difficult because the sense of being present, which is really the starting point for practice, is harder in when there's more distraction, when we're, you know, for many of us, how many of us think can notice that we're thinking uh, much, of the, much of our waking life. How many have that experience, the thinking a lot of the time? And again, it's not that thinking is bad, but it's harder to be present when that's occurring, when we have that kind of almost like automatic thinking. And we could go into that in a lot more depth, but what I did last time was that I named a number of different ways that we can deepen our daily life practice, you know, and you know, I, I um, think I mentioned last time when I, when I did my book, uh, The Engaged Spiritual Life, uh, it ended up being uh, 10 chapters. And I, or my original submission to my editor had 11 chapters, you know, which um, she thought 10 was better, you know, has some, has some uh, resonance with many, many cultures, the 10 this, the 10 that, you find that in Buddhist culture, the 10 paramis, obviously, the 10 commandments, and so forth. And, you know, I think many cultures like that, you know, because probably related to fingers and toes. So anyway, because of fingers and toes, my editor said, uh, we're not going to have your 11th chapter. My 11th chapter was on 60 ways of cultivating mindfulness in daily life. So, never got published. Anyway, um, but uh, maybe I can bring it back and 
offer it, you know, connected with our, with our group. Anyway, so I'll name a few. And the key is to listen for what really resonates with you, because we can't really do all of these, but just see what one or two of them really resonate. This is what we did last time. And I'll, I'll just name, without going into too much depth, some of the ones that, uh, some of the ones that we, uh, we looked at. So one of them, for some people, it would be just to have a regular uh, daily life formal practice, you know, that 20, 30 minutes a day. Uh, that could really make a significant impact on daily life. Uh, so that could be one way. Another way would be, if we already have that, have a, have a second sitting. Because uh, what happens when we bring the sense of being present, mindfulness, it's like uh, if we do that a few times in the day, we can weave, the, the day gets woven together and we remember our deeper intentions. We can remember our deeper intentions. Another way to do that weaving is to find a few little five-minute periods during the day where you just stop and pause and remember what's important. Maybe you do a little mindfulness. Maybe you take a little bit of a walk. Maybe you sit quietly. But you sort of, we can sort of end the, uh, the proceedings of the automatic mind. And all of these will help us just uh, have our intention to be present, to be wise, to be compassionate, however you frame it. It can help that to be there more. Uh, another way that that can be supported is to have um, a regular community that you're part of. For some of us, uh, this Wednesday morning is such a community that you come back to. That, that's an obvious support. Some of you may go to more than one session. How many of you go to more, maybe two or more groups during the week, right? Can make a big difference, right? Uh, a similar support might be to have a friend. We sometimes call this a buddy. Have a friend with whom you check in once a week for 10 minutes, right? Or do emails or text or whatever. But that you, you know, it's basically, it's, it's um, we often say, you know, I think this is in regard to mindfulness, but it could be said in regard to other elements of practice. Mindfulness is not hard. Remembering to be mindful, very hard, <laughs> right? Mindfulness isn't that hard. You just set yourself to it. You can, okay, I mean, we get distracted and so forth, but it's not hugely hard. But remembering to be mindful in the midst of everything, that's hard. So, all of these uh, supports can be really, really helpful. Similarly, maybe doing reading. You know, I have one student who just has a regular practice, 15 minutes of reading, you know, which he does every day, right? And some of you, probably some of you have, have that kind of practice. That can, be, that can be helpful. Another practice that I've done most of my last 30, 40 years is a, a Sabbath practice. You know, ancient tradition, many, many cultures, take one day a week in which you have either the whole day or it could just be two or three hours where you do it a little differently. And if you do it the same day every week, it really has tremendous momentum. Maybe you would take three hours, you meditate for half an hour, you take a walk, you do some reading, listen to a talk, do one more sitting. You do that every week. It makes a huge difference in terms of daily life practice. Um, for some people, it's actually more like, how can I um, reflect on my life, simplify and prioritize? That can be really, really uh, crucial. 
for deepening daily life practice. Just, you know, um, how can I prioritize what's most important to me? And um, I imagine that many of you do many of these or maybe even all of them. And, you know, I mean, again, I'm not being comprehensive here, but I'll name one other one, which is sometimes uh, we can deepen daily life practice by doing some more personal work, or we could call it psychological work. Could be working with a therapist, working on, you know, one's issues maybe that are still there, maybe from childhood, or there could be residual trauma, um, you know, to... Uh, to work with what's there. You know, some of the work that we do on transforming the judgmental mind is this kind of work, work with, work with some habitual tendencies, you know, uh, in, in some focused way. So, you know, the invitation was to listen to see which of those resonate with you, hoping that one or more do. And how many of you are actually in some way doing uh, one or more of the ones I mentioned? Yeah, so it's um, you know it's most most people it's it's helpful and of course there are others that you may be using that I didn't name that you know we if we could get a maybe sometime maybe in the discussion could add other things which you find helpful that'd be really a nice sort of uh, collaborative community use of our of our discussion time and then we also focused last time on what could be said to be a foundational practice for deepening daily life practice, and that is mindfulness of the body. Again, very, very significant in a more mental culture. And I mentioned last time that one way to practice this is to actually uh, learn how to have some mindfulness of the body when you're talking with people or listening or speaking. And for example, right now, uh, until we get to discussion, you'll be primarily in a listening mode, no responsibilities. See if you can listen, but also have some body awareness. Could be having awareness just of the hands touching. Maybe 20% of your attention on the hands, 80% on listening. Something like that. Because what, what that will start to do is it starts to open up the possibility and really mindfulness of the body helps so much on this, it starts to open up the possibility of having a kind of inner attention and outer attention at the same time, which is not easy. It's not a beginning practice. But what it means is that if I'm interacting with someone and I have just even a little bit of inner practice and I start becoming really reactive or irritable, I may notice that before I let loose on the person, right? That, that having some inner awareness is basically tracking what's going on in an, an internal way. If we're not doing that, we're often on automatic, you know, for better and worse, right? But sometimes for worse. And so, again, this is a, not a beginning practice. It really presupposes a lot of other capacities, like a pretty stabilized regular formal practice and some ability to stay with the body. Um, you know, uh, there are other ways to have that inner and outer practice, but having some, uh, some inner awareness and you can, and the way we develop it is we develop it first with, as with all practices where it's easier. 
So we might right now, you have 20% inner attention and just notice if you have any, notice if you have any inner commentary going on or inner reactions or, you know, a comment, I should do that or, or whatever, whatever it is. And you might, uh, and you'll notice that you can have some inner awareness as you're also listening. You know, when you're first doing it, it will feel awkward, admittedly. It will feel awkward and a little bit weird, right? And, oh, I can't. And I think, uh, I think Victoria asked this question last time about, uh, you know, when I do something like that, I, I don't feel like I'm quite in the flow like I'd like to feel. And uh, that can be true initially. As you make this really your own practice, it can feel more natural than in the flow. But admittedly, when you're first doing this, it can feel a little bit strange or weird. So don't worry about it. It changes. It's like any, it's like learning anything. You know, like you learn, you know, I, I think the last time I, I mentioned like, okay, you know, when you're first learning to ride a, a bicycle as a young kid, you know, you have to go through a training period and it's, you know, it's awkward and weird and it doesn't really feel natural and you know, things don't go right, but then after a while it feels very easy and natural and, and so forth. It's, it's, like, it's like that with any kind of learning process. So um, mindfulness of the body is so crucial for having uh, more awareness in daily life because it, it takes us away. It takes us away from what I like to call the monopoly of the automatic mind. You know, the way that we get caught in the automatic mind, you know, could be doing very good things, but we're not that aware, right? And so uh, mindfulness of the body can really, really um, be helpful in that way. And, you know, we can practice it in all sorts of ways. We mentioned some of them. Uh, many of you who've done yoga or qigong or some body practice uh, can uh, have that be a, a main place where you develop body awareness, you know, especially if you focus on awareness of the body during those practices, as as often uh, we'll, we'll be instructed to do. Uh, we can also develop mindfulness of the body, and we do just in uh, our formal meditation when we're developing mindfulness of the breath. Initially, for many of us, uh, this was actually learning how to be aware of the body. That's how it was for me when I first started practicing. It was a revelation because, as I mentioned last time, when I first started meditating, I was a student. And I thought I was supposed to be thinking all the time, <laughs> right? At least that was what education was when I was in that, you know, when I was a student. You know, it was like, okay, I should be reading, thinking, talking all the time. And, um, you know, even though I had been an athlete, very physically active, but I think when I was an athlete, I was thinking all the time too, Right? And so anyone relate to that? Anyone been an athlete and just noticed? So the train, so I found it a revelation to be able to be aware of the breath and then be aware of the body, be aware of sunsets, be aware of trees without thinking all the time. It was amazing. I thought, whoa, well, another, it's another way of living, which was felt uh, beautiful and wonderful. And, you know, that's what we keep, uh, that's what we keep coming back to. So we could, uh, focus on, so it was mindfulness of the body was what really opened up that uh, different way of experiencing. And so we can, um, we can train in that just by 
being with the breath in meditation. We can uh, sometimes, uh, you know, when we tune into body sensations in formal meditation, uh, if you sometimes I gave the practice, we can do the practice I gave last time, be with the whole body, you know, in a, in a very uh, simple way, be with the whole body, not in an overly focused way, but just generally be with the body. You can try that right now. And again, we could uh, do that when we take walks, do walking meditation. Uh, we could do it while we're eating. You know, we, we could take a meal, have it in silence, and just be aware of tastes and smells as we eat. That is going in the same direction. It's a kind of a form of mindfulness of the body. Um, and, and so all of these can really be supportive of being more present in the flow of daily life. Really a foundation, especially for helping us make the bridge of being more mindful in more complex activities, like talking, like interacting with others, even in doing our work, you know. And it's, uh, and so it's helpful to train in mindfulness of the body where it's pretty available or pretty accessible, where it's not too hard. You know, some things for most of us, like having mindfulness of the body when we're on the computer, for many of us is going to be the, the hardest thing. Being mindful of the body when we take a walk will be much easier. So train in the easier ones. Mindfulness of the body washing dishes, mindfulness of the body brushing one's teeth, taking a walk, and so forth. Do it where it, it can work and have that be a focus. And that could be a beautiful focus for a whole year and would really have results. So the rest of today, I want to talk about a second really foundational area of daily life practice. And that is really uh, complementary to mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness body will help a lot, as will the other practices I named. And the second really foundational area is practicing when there is reactivity in the mind. You know, maybe when I'm and I'll, I'll, I'll say in much more depth what I mean by reactivity, but for now we could think of it as when I'm, you know, we could use a word like triggered in some way, when I'm uh, kind of on automatic, maybe uh, being judgmental of myself, being judgmental of someone else, uh, getting caught in some storyline, um, find you know, having something happen, and just really reacting and kind of being lost in the reaction. So I'll say, you know, I'll be much more precise in a few moments about reactivity, but for now it's something that's more automatic, uh, uh, compulsive, and um, habitual, really. You know, we'll, we'll notice certain habits. And this again, like mindfulness of the body, is not necessarily a beginning practice. I would call it a more intermediate or advanced practice. Another way of saying this is our practice really deepens when we get interested in when we lose it a little bit or a lot or when we have challenges or difficulties. When we get really interested in those, and again, we need a certain foundation and confidence and um, 
having the tools of mindfulness and compassion and so forth, we need that foundation. But And that's why it's not necessarily a beginning practice. But when we can actually be interested in times when we get reactive, it's a tremendous way to deepen practice. And also can be bring our daily life practice um, into, bring a lot of energy to that practice. You know, I was thinking of there are two interesting Tibetan sayings uh, that really, uh, I think, resonate with this idea of being interested in our own reactivity. Uh, one of them goes like this. Um, this is sort of like a folk saying. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. Or I look like a good meditator, we could say. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a good practitioner. But then they go on to say, but when difficulties arise, my faults are exposed. Mm. Something like that, right? And so um, another, another saying from the Tibetan tradition goes, transform all obstacles into the path of practice transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Very pungent. And, um, and so, you know, I, I was thinking, it's almost like some of the old traditions of alchemy going back hundreds of years where they said the aim of alchemy is to transform lead into gold. And, and this is similar. We transform times when we get stuck, when we have habitual bad habits, we study them, we work with them, and what was formerly a problem now becomes a jewel. Really interesting, right? I mean, this is, uh, it's, it's, um, can give us a tremendous amount of confidence in this practice when we, when we work that way. And so we can, we can do that with our own individual minds and in our relationships and our work and our family situations. We can do this in relation to larger uh, social issues, and so forth. And there are a lot of subtleties here, and I'll try to name some of them. Uh, and, but, the, but I think what we can see is that we can have a very, very um, clear way of practicing. So I'll, I'll try to clarify more what this means in a, in a few different ways. Another way of talking about this is, is that we're actually cultivating more and more balance and equanimity. We're developing the ability to keep our practice going, even in situations which would get us stuck or lost or very reactive. As we study our reactivity, we become more and more able to uh, be lost for shorter amounts of time. It's not like our bad habits totally end, but we see them more quickly. I was thinking of the uh, Dalai Lama. And he once said, you know, I come from a part of Tibet where people are known to be very irritable. You wouldn't think of him that way, would you? I mean, but uh, he said, yeah, I, I grew up and I was kind of irritable. And I still get ir irritated sometimes but I notice it more quickly. <laughs> that was what he said, you know, great Dalai Lama. You know, 
his public persona is not to get irritated a lot, but that's really what this is about. It's about seeing all this more quickly, you know, having that, having that capacity. Um, we learn, we learn balance. We learn to see things more clearly. So let me go back to the core teachings of the Buddha. What are some of the uh, ways that reactivity occurs? I would say that in the teachings of the Buddha, there are two core forms of reactivity. And we explored these some in the guided meditation. One is compulsively grasping after the pleasant, and the other is compulsively pushing away the unpleasant. And that's what we want to be looking at and in all different forms. Again, there are a lot of nuances and subtleties here, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to get to those just in a moment. But here's, here's the basic model. And uh, Tolan, we can go to the uh, first screen share. In the teachings that um, are called the teachings of dependent origination, and these are the teachings that came from the Buddha's awakening, there, it's actually a set of 12 factors, and we'll be looking at the central four of them. This is basically a model, and I've, I teach this uh, fairly often, so it will be familiar to many of us. The teaching basically says, uh, gives 12 factors. The first five of them are basically what we bring to experience. The middle four, the ones that we have on the screen share, are what happens in experience. And then the last three are what are the consequences of experience. And I think we can explain the model very, very simply, even though to go into detail would be a little more complex. So it's basically saying that the first five factors are that most of us have some mix of being caught in habitual tendencies and a certain level of spiritual ignorance. We don't see clearly the nature of things. That's why we're practicing. And, and the first five factors basically say all of us bring to experience certain, a certain level of ignorance and some habitual tendencies. Then, and I won't go into that in any more depth than what I just said, on the basis of that relative ignorance and habitual tendencies, here's what's happened, here's what happens in our ordinary experience, when we're not aware, when we're not mindful, when we're not wise. Here's what happens. Basically, we go through four factors when we're not aware, not, not mindful. We have first contact through one of our senses with what could be called a sense object, that we, for example, I see what I call a tree, or I see a piece of chocolate pie, um, or I smell something, or I taste something, or I hear something. And in, in Buddhist psychology, this could also be having a thought, because the, the uh, mind and thinking are described as the sixth sense. So let's say that I am having supper, and I've just had my first piece of strawberry pie. I finished it, and I notice that there's more pie left. 
That's contact. And virtually immediately, with contact with the senses, there's some kind of feeling tone. Something like um, it can be either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And, <clears throat> and so here the feeling tone it could be the feeling tone of a body sensation, a feeling tone of a thought, and almost all of our uh, feeling tones are more or less neutral, maybe 98 or 99 percent of them. But So if you're sitting here right now, you're, you're noticing all sorts of things, you're seeing all sorts of things. Most of them don't have a charge, positive or negative, right? And you can just notice your experience right now. But some of them do. You might be feeling mildly uncomfortable. I notice I'm sitting. I have just a mild level of, of unpleasant sensations as I sit, just a little bit stiff. Doesn't, doesn't affect me much, but it's there. <clears throat> and we might, have, uh, we might have a pleasant thought of, uh, you know, I like studying this, or this is interesting idea. We might have, I, I should do it more, or I like this. And so when I look to that strawberry, the, the leftover pie after my first piece, I have a pleasant thought arises, a second piece, you know, and there's, there's a pleasant sense there. I could also, on the basis of, um, you know, like what I was describing with my sitting on the chair, I can notice the contact, um, with my body, with the chair, there is an unpleasant sensation. You know, it's not very strong, but it's still mildly unpleasant. And so far, we're just going with what's given an experience. And then on the basis, this is when we're not aware, not mindful, we have a certain background of some confusion or general ignorance. Then <clears throat> when there's a pleasant experience, I have wanting. I want that piece of pie. And maybe I have a thought. I, I, I'll have a second piece. Or if there is an unpleasant experience, I may have a sense of not wanting. You know, like if my, if my sensations where I'm sitting maybe got strong enough, I might say, let's shift around a little bit. You know, something like that. Right now I'm not doing that. It's not intense enough. And then fourthly, I would... Uh, you know, again, this is more or less uh, happening somewhat automatically, unconsciously, compulsively. Uh, I reach for that piece of pie and I take it, um, you know, maybe without, again, the key here is without really knowing what's happening. I just do it automatically because there's wanting. And similarly, I might, you know, just, uh, you know, automatically shift my posture, you know, shift away, get up. And uh, get away of the un get get rid of the unpleasant. Now we'll come back to some complexities here because you know shifting away from the unpleasant experience can be something that's wise that we can do with mindfulness and wisdom. Even the same thing, taking a second piece of pie could be you know could be actually skillful. What we're looking at here is the fact that when we're not mindful and not, you know, when we don't have wisdom operative, this process can be very automatic. And in fact, a lot of it happens in a split second. We can let go of the screen share. And so 
we might <clears throat> we might uh, see how sometimes when someone says something to me that I don't like, automatically I react back just in a split second. And probably many we could think very easily of examples of that grasping or pushing away that happened just in a split second, right? How many people can easily think of examples of that grasping or pushing away? And so the uh, what's really key here is to look at that mechanism of the, the movement uh, from contact to grasping or pushing away. This is actually the heart of the entire teachings of the Buddha. This is it, folks. You don't want to read all those thousands of books on Buddhism? This is it. This is the heart of 26 years, 2,600 years of tradition. The heart of it is right there. You know, there's some things that can fill it out, like, you know, how to be mindful and so forth. But actually learning how to, um, learning the uh, teachings about reactivity and then having the tools that can help us work with and transform reactivity, which include mindfulness, which include compassion and so forth. This is the heart of the tradition. And this is the essence of everything. It's that simple, really. You know, it can get very complicated at times, but this is, this is really it. And this is actually, um, I would say, the heart of the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is exactly what we just covered. Although I, I think personally, I won't go into it in detail, but personally, I think that the teaching we just explored is a little clearer than the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, actually, believe it or not. You know, and the reason that is, is because I think that this reactivity, that which is, again, comes in the two forms, grabbing or pushing away automatically, compulsively, relatively unconsciously, is actually what is meant by dukkha. The aim of all of Buddhist practice is to end dukkha, usually translated as suffering, right? And I think there can be some confusion there, and I've talked about that at times. In fact, I have a, if you look on Dharma Seed, I have a whole talk called Dukkha and the End of Dukkha. The Buddha teaches the end of dukkha. And it makes sense to think of the end of dukkha as the end of reactivity. It doesn't make sense to think of it as the end of unpleasant experiences. And often we mean, when we think of suffering, we think of just difficult, unpleasant experiences. Those will continue, but what ends is our unskillful way we react to them. That's, and I, I could go into detail, because one of the reasons it's confusing is that in actually the teachings of the Buddha, in the suttas, in the, in the discourses, he gives at least four different definitions of dukkha. Only one of them makes sense of the idea that dukkha can end and the aim of ending dukkha. The first meaning that he gives is more or less dukkha is the unpleasant. You know, he, that's where he talks about dukkha is old age, illness, dying, and so forth. That's the unpleasant. But if you don't have reactivity, as presumably the Buddha uh, didn't have, then even getting older, even illness, even dying, one can do without reactivity. 
So when you talk about the end of dukkha, it doesn't mean the end of the unpleasant, right? And similarly, another definition he gave was that dukkha is the idea that nothing of a conditioned nature can give lasting satisfaction. But that's going to be also, that's going to be true uh, even when we're fully awake. And so the end of, if we talk about the end of dukkha, it doesn't mean the end of um, conditioned things not giving lasting satisfaction. Are you following me okay? I'm giving a very condensed account of why uh, reactivity is actually a, a way of understanding dukkha that lets underst us understand the primary meaning of the whole aim of all of what we're doing. And, I, and again, maybe, maybe you could go into more depth if you wish. You could find a talk called Dukkha and the End of Dukkha. I go into a lot more detail, but I hope that helps a little bit. You know, because the usual definition of suffering, we talk about the end of suffering. What does that mean? Does it mean that I won't have any more bad hair days? I don't think so. And the Buddha himself, when he was older, had a bad back. And so, unless we define suffering very precisely as non-reactivity, uh, suffering can be a little bit too confused a term. That's my view. Okay? Does that make a little bit of sense? Okay. So, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm talking about reactivity. So, what are some of the forms of reactivity that we may, we may notice? You know, I mentioned some of them. We can be judgmental. We can be, uh, I can be reactive physically. I can, uh, when I have unpleasant sensations, I can just try immediately to get rid of them. And this can lead actually to a certain amount of tension in the body. I like to tell the story of how the first medical intervention with mindfulness was in the field of chronic pain because they found that for some forms of chronic pain, as much as 80% of the pain was due to the reactivity because of the original sensation, 80%. And so if you can reduce chronic pain, this is not all forms of chronic pain, but some, if you can cut out that 80% or cut that 80% in half, by teaching non-reactivity to the unpleasant, it's incredible. And that was the first medical intervention with mindfulness by John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. <clears throat> and so that, that would be an example. We can stop tensing around the unpleasant. We can be with difficult or unpleasant emotions without being reactive about them, without blaming ourselves. I get sad. I get fearful, we know that often our blaming of ourselves for a particular emotion is way, way worse than the emotion itself, right? That's reactivity, right? So it's like it's that uh, shooting of the second arrow that I often teach. The first arrow is the difficult experience. That's a given. Can we avoid shooting ourselves with a second arrow, blaming ourselves, judging ourselves, because of the first hour. Those are all forms of reactivity. That's what we can work with. You know, we can work with it on a physical level. We can work with it on an emotional level. We can work with it ideas. Reactivity would be having a narrative. I'm going to be like this forever. Or this is my 
you know, something difficult happens, you know, maybe I end a relationship and I have the thought, I'll never be in a relationship again. Anyone ever had that one? Okay, right. That's reactivity. Now, I'll just mention one or two complexities here, and then we can open things up. <clears throat> one complexity is that <clears throat> often, let's see, how can I say it? That I can be reactive about something that's happened, and I the reactivity can be mixed with some kind of intelligence or discernment. That makes this all a little bit tricky. And so, for example, a friend, let's say, um, said, I'll come over and we'll have a, you know, we'll have a meal together at 6.30. The person comes 45 minutes late. I become uh, reactive in the form of, to use a Buddhist technical term, being pissed off. Okay? And... I get, I get irritated, I get angry, I'm quite reactive, but I've also noticed something important that the person didn't keep an agreement. There's some intelligence there, there's some discernment. What we'd be looking for in the long run is how to transform the reactivity and keep the discernment. We don't throw out the discernment as we transform reactivity. That's a really key point. That's because I can be, I can see social injustice. I can get really reactive about the injustice, right? And it's actually, I think, quite important to transform <clears throat> reactivity about, <clears throat> about um, injustice. Sorry, <clears throat> I'm having an unpleasant experience with my throat. <clears> throat> <clears throat> And I'm so far not reactive, but it's, the water's not helping. <clears throat> okay. I didn't notice too much reactivity in relationship to my throat. So, so far, so good. Okay. So, but with, you know, um, injustice is actually important and the basis of a lot of approaches to social change to actually work through the reactivity related to injustice before acting, you know, or, you know, I would want to work through some reactivity with my friend before I bring up the point, you know, you know, the other day, uh, you know, I thought you were going to come over at this time, and you didn't, I got a little irritated. And, you know, there's skillful ways of approaching that it really helps if we've worked through some of our reactivity. So that's, that's a qualification of this, that, that it gets a little more complex, because we ultimately want to work through the reactivity and work work it through, but preserve the discernment and be able then. And again, this would take a lot more um, discussion. Ultimately, come to a place where we can be responsive rather than reactive. That's again a formula for the entirety of all of Buddhist practice. Can I be responsive rather than reactive? And again, sometimes in English, we use the word somewhat uh, synonymously to mean the same thing. Here I'm making, having very different meanings. So being reactive is being caught in that compulsive automatic grasping or pushing away. And being responsive is 
responding to the situation, you know, my, you know, my um, mildly unpleasant sensations and my um, can contact with the uh, chair, my relation with my friends, social injustice, can I respond non-reactively to a situation that needs a response, right? That's where we're going. And there's a, a lot more we can say about it. But I'll just say that it's helpful just to notice all the different ways we grasp after the pleasant, after pleasant sights, sounds, sensations, relationships, experiences, all the ways that we push away. It's good to see what are my top five, what are my top ten. So let me finish just uh, briefly by talking about a few ways of practicing that I'll, I'll suggest for the next period of time. We want to have a regular way of cultivating non-reactivity, mindfulness, uh, loving-kindness. Having a regular way of cultivating non-reactivity is really crucial. We want to be aware of these core teachings. We could call this the wisdom teachings about non-reactivity. We want to have a clear sense of the teachings. That can be really, really helpful. If we're spending a fair amount of time going into reactivity, it's really helpful to balance it out by, by bringing some of the heart practices like loving kindness or compassion or forgiveness, any, any ones that you do can be really helpful. If we're spending a lot of time going into reactivity, it can be a little bit on the downside. And so we want to have a balance of going into beautiful states, be with beauty, be with beautiful art, music, the wilds, trees, flowers, and so forth. If you're doing spending a lot of time looking at reactivity, have things which are uplifting, in other words. Whether a meditative heart practice experience or some other experience. Uh, let's see. It can be really helpful to notice um, what are your top five forms of reactivity? Make a list of them. Set an intention at the end of your meditation to look for reactivity in daily life. Look for reactivity in your formal meditation. Set an intention at the beginning of the sitting to look for reactivity, study it. You can do so much like we did it in the sitting. One way to practice is to particularly look for a significantly pleasant or a significantly unpleasant experience and then notice what your mind does or notice what your body does. Notice if you have tendencies to grasp or to push away in all the different forms that that could occur. So set your radar and it's fascinating to study. You can fascinating to study it, you know, you can study it in interactions with people. You know, I know, you know, one story that I tell a lot is when I was interacting with a uh, person who was boss of the organization where I worked, I would meet with him and I would get very judgmental towards him because I thought he wasn't a good listener. I would say something and I thought he would ignore me. And at that time, this was a while, quite a while ago, I would notice myself being reactive and I was working with a mentor and she had me really take my meetings with this guy as chances to practice, to study my own reactivity, but then also to respond skillfully, but non-reactively. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe next time I can go in, you can also do role playing with your friend or partner. You can do you can set up skits where you uh, set up a situation where you'd normally be reactive and try out some new things. It can really be fun. You know, uh, my colleague Orin J. Sofer and I, we do this when we teach on wise speech. 
we have two full days where we do skits and you know people you know deliberately triggering other people <laughs> you know it's, it's fun maybe we can do that maybe we can do that maybe we can do that another session maybe next session where i'm here we can do some uh people can volunteer to be triggered or to trip maybe you can say something which might be anyway we'll, i won't go into the detail but you can but that that can be a lot of fun so uh, to practice like that, remember the heart practices, remember to be with beautiful things, beautiful experiences, and uh, yeah, and just to, uh, yeah, just to see what your patterns are, study the reactivity, what's it like in the body, what's it like in the mind, what are your usual stories, that's a good way, this, these are good ways to start, and if you can do it in daily life, it's a wonderful practice. It's a way to bring right the center of practice into the flow of the day. Set your radar, set an intention. Let me be aware of reactivity when it occurs during the day. Maybe set that intention two or three times during the day. It can be huge. I have a number of people I work with who practice like this. It is a way of making practice come alive, right? And can be tremendous learning. And so set that intention if you can if it's possible when you become reactive, pause, study it. You know, uh, if you're in an interaction with someone and you, it's hard to pause in the moment, say that you need to go to the bathroom. You know, intentional, strategic, going to the bathroom is a very key dimension of spiritual practice. Okay. Uh, the Buddha did not talk about it, but it probably, maybe it was one of the secret teachings. I don't know. Anyway, um, so those are, those are enough. Let me, uh, let me finish. I'll finish with a, a poem by Rumi, and then we'll have a little time to talk. Um, this is uh, another way of expressing it. He uses, the you know, being a, a Sufi, he uses more the language of God, you know, being uh, a Muslim. And so... This is, um, but he's talking about the same thing, how we usually think, oh, difficult experiences. Um, oh, poor me, woe is me. Let me just have wonderful experiences. And he's saying that actually, if we take our difficult experiences as opportunities for learning and practice, they become tremendous gifts. So here's what he says. This is a poem called The Question. God's presence is there in front of me. A fire on the left, that's the unpleasant, the difficult. A lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire. Another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire, and so end up in it. Whoa. <laughs> Most people guard against going into the fire, <clears throat> and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. 
To these eyes you have now what looks like fire burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. Whoa, that's a lot. So let's sit quietly. And see what's there for you. We'll open things up, see whether there's, uh, you have a question or maybe something to share about uh, practicing with reactivity. And I realized when I was saying, whoa, that I was actually uh, channeling Sylvia. She does that too, right? She said, whoa. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay, who is, uh, is there any, oh, there's Carolyn. And then looks like a question from Andrew. So let's do Carolyn first, and then Tolan, you could read the question. Hello, thank you. Yeah. When I go into meditation, sometimes, am I echoing? I think you're fine from, from my hearing. Okay, yeah. I'm echoing for me, but... Okay, so I'm going into meditation. doesn't always happen. I'm paying attention to my breath, and all of a sudden, I'm suffused with light, with a pleasant feeling, and it's not something I can go after consciously with much success, mm -hmm. but when it comes, I know that my meditation will go deeper. Mm -hmm. Is that of any concern? Um, it sounds like it's positive. I mean, it sounds like it's real more like a, uh, um, a way that your body and mind relate to some quality of settling. Is it is it correlated with mind settling down some and settling some? Sometimes. Yeah. It's as I say, like I'm I'm paying attention to my breath. I'm going into meditation, and I'm not doing anything different, but all of a sudden, in Quebec, we'd, I get a frisson, I get a little shiver, Yeah, and then it's so pleasant. And, and are, are, is there uh, not much thought going on? No. Yeah, it sounds like it's a natural way that... Uh, uh, you're, you're for however it works for you. You're reaching kind of a settled place. Actually, when the mind is quiet and concentrated, it opens up a natural bliss in the body. Okay, bliss. Yeah, and that, that that's my sense is that's what you're experiencing. Because if you had a lot of thoughts, I would say it differently. But the fact that you're actually quiet, it's it's actually one of the revelations. Um, for many of us, when we start meditating, especially if we can touch that, you know, I know it was for me that it just I was like, whoa, it's another world, right? That's that's amazing. So my sense is it's just the correlate of your mind getting quiet, settled, not much thinking. And I think you were pointing to it's not helpful to try to grab after it. That would be uh, doing exactly what we were just analyzing. So it's a pleasant experience, Grasping. and watch out for any tendencies to grasp onto it. It comes more naturally. 
if you grasp onto it, it'll it'll actually fade away, and you'll probably have some frustration. <laughs> so so sounds good, Carolyn. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Gail, please. Or I guess we were going to read uh, Tolan the question in the chat. Was it from Andrew? I did not receive that chat. I think it just went straight to you. Okay. So I, I didn't actually read the content, so I don't know if it's a question. Um, Andrew, are you still there? Do you want, was it something that would be a, something of use to the whole group? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to know uh, the name of the poem. Okay, this is one of the easiest questions that I, I ever get. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will answer it hopefully very well. Um, the name is The Question, and it's in the uh, Coleman Barks translation of Rumi. You should be able just to Google Rumi The Question and, and get it. Thank you. Um, Gail, please. I wanted to say, first off, I really enjoyed your talk. Thank um, you. I have a picture on the wall um, of a beautiful flower, and it says pause. Yeah. So that's a connection that, you know, we make when we're mindful and of nature. But I think in relation to your talk, this idea of pausing and giving yourself the opportunity for choice hmm. so that you don't get into this compulsive kind of behavior but that I mean you may still follow that track but that you have a choice would that follow along with what you were talking about yeah nicely said really uh, thank you Gail that you're, you're bringing out a point which I didn't highlight so much which is that this um, this mindfulness this awareness of you know if we go back to that movement from contact to grasping or pushing away when I become aware, oh, I'm really wanting this, or I really, or I really want to get rid of this, prior to actually acting, if we can notice that, then we actually can open up what, what we might call a space of freedom, yeah. right? A space of choice, mm -hmm. and that's really that's really the purpose of this. It's it's that we want to that we maybe we have tendencies to be reactive, but with my mindfulness. I pause, I bring awareness to it, and I can ask myself, do I really want to go there? And we can have a, you know, a, wise, a wise choice. It could be something we might do if we have tendencies at overeating. You know, we can notice the tendencies and ask the question. Or when I get really irritated, someone says something, if I just pause and I'm just about to say something nasty and I notice what's going on inside, and I pause and I say, do I want to go there now? And maybe I don't. And I just say, you know, I'm feeling kind, of, I'm feeling kind of irritated now. Could we talk about this later? Rather than just letting go with, uh, you know, the reaction. So it, it very, yeah, thank you for bringing it up. And it really brings the whole space of freedom. That's really the purpose of it. Uh, the purpose of the, uh, the teaching and the analysis the practices are to not have us be any more at the mercy of our habitual tendencies, but rather to bring awareness. And in that awareness, there is the freedom to say, do I want to go there? Even though the energies kind of can be strong, right? The energy of reactivity can be quite strong, but we bring awareness to it. And we have the teaching that 
you know, the, I didn't, again, I wasn't explicit, but the teaching really is that when we're acting automatically or compulsively, it's probably not going to be wise. Right? Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Gail. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe one more if there's, if we have anyone had something else? Especially if it's a little bit brief. Anyone else want to ask a question or share something? Okay, Barbara, please. You're still muted, Barbara. I am. Yep. No, now you're now you're fine. You have to unmute now. You were you were fine a moment ago. There you go. Okay. Okay. Last week I did for the first two days, and then I totally forgot it, which was too bad. But yeah. I did the pause several times during the day. Yeah. And it just changed everything. Well. Wow. It just I could just be walking down my hallway and I'd remember and I would just stop in the middle. Yeah. And breathe and just stand there and usually a little gratitude flowed in that I was calm and there um, in the pause. And so I'd stay there a little while, and then I'd finish walking down the hall or wherever I was going and continue. And for the first, so I guess Thursday and Friday, I paused a lot and had really nice equanimous days. Wow. And then I don't know what happened after that. Life just got too big and fast, and I forgot about it. But it was almost like getting a cool drink of water when you're parched. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, thank was, you for the description. And do you, have a cal do you have a calendar you work with, either written or electronic? Yeah, I do. Write pause every day, for every day. Okay. <laughs> Three times a day. Or however, however many times. But yeah, thank you so much for the description. It's really, it was, uh, yeah, it's such a simple, powerful practice. You know, it's like that... Uh, was that uh, uh, the Supreme's old song, Stop in the Name of Love? Right. <laughs> it, was, it was. It felt like that. Right. It was so, so thank you. I love this part about reactivity. You could talk about it every week. Um, and you, would, think, you wouldn't be reactive. <laughs> I think it's so important and helpful. Okay. Great. Thank you, thank you Barbara. So let's, let's finish now. Two things. First, just... Sit quietly and especially see if you're drawn to work with daily life practice with you know, uh, one or two practices. It could be uh, one of the ones I mentioned, could be mindfulness of the body, could be working with reactivity. And not to do too much, just one or two is enough. See what calls you if you feel called to uh, work with daily life practice with one of these tools. And take about 30, 40 seconds. Then we'll finish with the dedication of merit, very traditional 
May our practice be beneficial to us, to everyone here. May it be beneficial as it radiates out from us to touch those in our own circles. May it be beneficial as it radiates out still further, ultimately to touch all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much, everyone. Great to explore this territory together. If you want to unmute and um, say hello, goodbye, whatever you'd like to say, feel free. And we'll see you, uh, I'll see you, I guess, in three weeks. I'll continue with the same theme in three weeks. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank, bye. You. Bye. thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> Till next time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Such a gift. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, Toland, again. Thank you. All right. I'll close the meeting. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Bye, Liz.